Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playwear, P-L-A-A, Play. It's more than fashion, it's a feeling. Learn more about Playwear. Go to PressPlay.com. That's P-L-A-A, Playwear. Thank you so much for joining me on the Here Comes the Pain podcast today. Uh, I have been gone for a while, but... Uh, I've got some good news for the listeners. Have a wonderful guest to join us today. And not only is she brilliant and very in demand, and I feel very fortunate to have her joining me, but she also happens to be a good friend. And um, ironically, and I don't know if she remembers this or not, but the first person I ever took a flight with, uh, literally my first flight ever was with this person. And I will, I will let her respond to that in a second, but let me introduce her first. Her name is Heather McGee. She is the chair of Color of Change, and she is the author of The Some of Us, um, a fascinating, groundbreaking book that we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, and she's my friend. Hi, Heather. How are you? Hey, Joel. I'm so glad you reminded me of that. I, now all of these memories of this big beautiful man sitting next to me a little bit scared a, a little <laughs> bit have come, have come flooding back a little bit a little bit might be kind i was very very scared <laughs> i was terrified heather this was for for the for the listeners there heather and i um my first campaign i worked on was the john edwards for president campaign which heather and i could spend an entire podcast on we won't but um but heather was a domestic policy advisor on that campaign and i was a research staffer and we left iowa and we were going to new hampshire and i had never been on a flight before as an adult i think my parents took me when i was younger but heather happened to she she uh drew the lucky straw of being able to sit next to me and watch me as i white knuckled all the way through the the plane ride i'm like what is that why is the plane turning why is it making that sound she was like joel the plane has to land you need to relax so (laughs) oh my goodness that is great so very very Um, Heather, so much has happened since we had the opportunity to work together and, um, there's a lot to get into, but I know our time is limited. Um, I guess most, um, kind of time sensitive is you are the author of this book that is just buzzing and, um, I'm so proud to know you and I'm so proud to, um, have kind of been a part of a small part of the journey that kind of led you to write this book. Um, and the book is called the sum of us and, You know, I think what's so interesting about this book to me is obviously it talks about the inequity and inequality and about all the ways that it harms, um, you know, let's just say underprivileged, underserved populations. But it also talks about the inherent harm it causes to the majority, to our white friends and neighbors and to the infrastructure that holds the system up. Right. I mean, it really I, I thought that was so fascinating that you took that and you forced a you almost forced a mirror and you forced a conversation into those who in a lot of ways are kind of holding the system up could you just talk a little bit about the book and the journey to writing the book yeah absolutely joel thanks for having me on um i uh, i after actually before i was a domestic policy advisor uh in 08 I also i had started my career at demos the inequality focused think tank 
And then I went to law school and turned my back around and, and went back to it. And so I spent nearly 20 years working on issues of economic inequality. That's what drew me uh, to, to working on the campaign that we worked on together as well. And so my job was to bring research and data uh, to policymakers and try to encourage them to make the right economic decisions about wages and benefits, about childcare and healthcare, about taxes, about student debt and college affordability, all of these issues. And sometimes we made progress, you know, we definitely had friends and people who championed um, the, the, the issue of inequality as it was growing year after year. Um, we had policymakers who thought that the fact that 1% of the population owns more wealth than the entire middle class was a problem. And even more importantly, actually, that, that 40% of adult workers are paid too little to meet their basic needs. These, these are urgent issues, and yet it felt like in, in the country with the largest economy on earth, we still weren't making real progress. And uh, after Trump walks his fat ass into the White House, excuse me, <laughs> We can keep it real here, Heather. No, no, no. This is just just some friends catching up. Um, he, uh, you know, I said, you know, okay, there's something else going on here, and I want to get to the bottom of it. Why is it that we can't seem to have nice things in this country? Not only that has all this money and resources, but also used to do better, right? Used to actually give a, a guy coming out of high school a union card in one hand, you know, and a hard hat in the other, and he was set for life. Why is it that that we used to have a big, big secure middle class and it's shrinking? What happened and, and why? And so I set off on a journey across the country. I talked to hundreds of people. I, I, I sort of put the economics uh, data behind to a certain degree and looked into sociology and po political science and public opinion. And the answer that was revealed uh, was that really it is racism in our politics, in our policymaking, that more than any other single factor helps explain the inequality era, helps explain what happened to the great American middle class as the great American people became more diverse. And as white Americans shifted from being really pro-government, the party of the New Deal, uh, to turning their backs on that party when the party also became the party of civil rights. Yeah, you know, Heather, and so much of this in, in our lifetimes, um, you know, we're contemporaries, you know, professionally and personally, and it, uh, so much of this has transitioned in our lifetime, and it, it has really um, just kind of transformed the, the, the interplay that you kind of talk about in this book. Um, one of the things I really appreciated about the book was how you kind of mirrored your personal and professional journey and you linked it to um, all of these findings and all of these learnings about the country and about society. Um, and I think you did it in a way without alienating um, a lot of folks. And I actually feel like that is a very, that's a good model for educating and maybe changing behavior. And I guess I would just be curious, is, is that a core belief of yours? Is that a core philosophy about, about the importance of not alienating, but engaging? I, I'll, I'll also bring up as an aside, you had that moment in 2016 when you were on air, you and I are both, um, you know, we moonlight as television pundits. You do it a, a much better job than I do, but you were on C-SPAN Washington Journal and you had that interchange with the white gentleman who talked about his racist kind of beginnings and his racist leanings. And I thought that was such a model for 
how to churn around and kind of course correct and change behavior. So I gave you a big question there, but just curious about your yeah. thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, you know, so um, Dr. Ibram Kendi and I had a conversation, uh, like did a book event together the, the week that my book came out. And his first question was, so how, you know, this is the guy who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist since from the beginning. And, you know, he's probably more than any other single person right now sort of associated with the, the anti-racist movement and, and, and with this moment of, of mass education and reckoning and, um, you know, sort of unapologetic uh, uh, naming of, of the extent of systemic racism and of the complicity of, of people who, who hold racist beliefs and upholding that system. And so this book, which widens the aperture about race and racism and, and, and talks about racism's harms that spread out beyond the targeted communities, beyond people of color, and talks about the way it distorts our entire system, the way it therefore also has costs for white people too. Um, you know, I wasn't so sure how that was going to go over. You know what I mean? Because there's very much a sort of like you're with us or you're against us kind of flair to our politics now, all you know, across the board. And so uh, Ibram Kendi read the book, and his first question for me was, "How did you have the courage to, to do something so somewhat controversial? You know, what what made you think you could kind of do this and say this and and, and try to shift the conversation in this way?" and um, you know, I, I have to reflect on that. I do think there is something in me that is more of a teacher than um, than anything else. I've never, um, I've actually, I've taught a few times, but you know, I'm not a teacher. I've, I've been a policy wonk and an advocate and a lawyer. But there's something about, I believe profoundly in the capacity for change and in the power of human transformation. And there's something about seeing someone's mind expand, seeing the lights go on, seeing them put on a new pair of glasses with which to see the world. I think it's so powerful and wonderful. And if you look back at all of the heroes and icons of the movements for racial justice in our history, those people have done that, right? They haven't, you know, just motivated the people who were with them, right? They have transformed people. They have expanded who is with us. They have been organizers. And I think there's something about the crossover between educating and organizing that in the day of social media where we can get 2,000 likes on a tweet and therefore we think, you know, we've reached a lot of people, um, I think there's something that we're missing, which is the basic bread and butter work of getting people who have been sold on an hourly basis from well-funded corporate media, from the entire right-wing political ecosystem, through you know all the conservative meme factories and social media, they have been sold this racist story. And you know, I think it's naive to say that we don't have to work to go toe-to-toe with that marketing right that we don't have to those of us who want to see a stronger fairer more inclusive more just america those of us who want to free black people um from from the vestiges of racism and slavery in our lives and in our systems you know we got work to do and and it's not going to just be about talking to people who already like our tweets and who already agree with us it's it's actually has to be shifting the way people see things um and then the other thing I'll just say briefly is that, 
you know, I had a hunch going out to write the sum of us that, um, and in, in many ways, I think most black people that in my life and that I've talked to about the book are like, yeah, like I know that racism makes white people do crazy shit. And I know that, you know, when they don't want to vote for Obamacare, it's because it's Obamacare, right? Like those are some just basic things that we know, some political instincts that we have based on being black and free and alive in America, you know, and having seen the way this politics turns. There's a shared um, oral shared oral history among uh, right. our, our community. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and so in many ways, some of the most enthusiastic readers and supporters of the book have been black people who was like, thank you for giving me this so I can give it to my, you know, the accountant, uh, you know, on my team, right? Um, so that's been really good. But I think um, I actually didn't even realize how deep it was going to go. I, you know, I mean, for, take one example. So my book includes chapters on workers' rights and collective bargaining and how racism defeats unionism. Um, it includes chapter a chapter on the financial crisis and how racism caused the financial crisis, which, you know, cost everyone 8 million jobs and trillions of dollars in lost wealth. It, it includes a chapter on how racism played a part in the shift from free public college to this debt for diploma system and the rise of student debt. How racism helped defeat national health insurance. So there are all these things, right? I didn't inc- intend to include a chapter on the environment and climate change, but racism is playing a role in our inability or unwillingness um, to, to move forward on addressing climate change as well. Um, but then a week ago with, with the president's um, you know, joint address of Congress where he really laid out the vision for a new family policy in the country, the New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg called me and said, you know, I'm writing a column about why America has not had a family policy like every, you know, other advanced nation. We don't have paid family leave, we don't have childcare, we just don't care, right, <laughs> you know? Um, and and she said, I think it has to do with racism because I read your book, but, you know, I'd love a quote. And I said, you know, I actually didn't, I don't, you know, I gave her sort of a basic idea about the way racism has defeated public goods and, and that, in public infrastructure and that family policy is an infrastructure, the human infrastructure that's necessary to make all other work possible. And then the next day, there was an article from ProPublica about childcare, which then unearthed how the conservatives during the childcare, universal childcare debate under President Nixon were opposed to it because they thought it would be uh, that another vehicle for integration and i was like dang i didn't even know that you know what i mean like it just goes so deep so many of the ways that this country has become dysfunctional and has not done what we need to do for our people to truly thrive all of our people all of our families to truly thrive you know has so much of the resistance has come to this down to this this racist belief that some groups of people are better than others and that we need to keep um keep keep apart stay apart here comes the Payne Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and I am fortunate enough this week to be joined by my good friend, uh, influencer, um, brilliant author, Heather McGee, um, who is the author of the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Us and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, you should buy this book. You should read it. Um, you should share it. It's good conversation fodder, and we're having a great conversation about it right now. Heather, just to kind of tie this a little bit to current events, um, 
question for you. What was the release date of this book? Or uh, roughly, roughly. February 16th. Oh, no, I remembered it. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> February so 16th. I'm asking that very specifically. That was five weeks after what happened with the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And um, mm-hmm. look, I know none of us were either prescient or, um, you know, gosh, um, just could, could even come up with um, the type of uh, the type of thought that that something like that might happen. It does seem interesting that your book and and kind of this topic of what the broader cost of racism is. I mean, it literally happened. It, it was released and it became a part of the zeitgeist live fire at the time that this was happening. And I guess as a part of a wind up here, you know, that felt to me like such a chickens coming home to roost moment, particularly for the people who had been propping up and had been allowing Donald Trump to do his thing for the last five years, because it was the first time that they felt the fear and they felt the absolute panic that black and brown and underrepresented and women and LGBT and all these afflicted populations that have been under the bootstraps of the Trump administration. It's the first time that they felt the fear and the panic that a lot of us had been feeling for not just four years, five years, watching the country, um, you know, fall into this abyss. And I guess I'd be curious as to just your thought process as you're releasing this book and you're introducing it to people as this cultural, you know, moment, um, ugly cultural moments happening. Yeah, I mean, it really um, was a, an object lesson in the way that some, you know, goaded on by the people who are always goading on um, and selling these racist ideas, right? The, the, the fringe conservative elite, right? Donald Trump is himself a, a, almost a caricature of the, the racist plutocrat who sells and markets racist ideas for his own economic and political gain, no matter what it costs the people who are buying it. That, that and, and, you know, the racism is so, is such a unifying force in, in January 6th, right? From, from the racist idea, the common sense that, of course, the election had to be stolen because the majority of white people voted for Donald Trump, right? Um, uh, that, that an election could have been stolen. First of all, the very idea of voter fraud makes, you know, only makes sense with, with racist stereotypes underneath it, right? That, that, that black and brown people being citizens is somehow, um, you know, our sort of inherent criminality and illegitimacy as citizens um, is really what undergirds the, the belief, the, the almost faith in, in that there's massive voter fraud in this country that's really been awakened since, since the, oh, I call him the president, since Obama, <laughs> since yeah. President Obama, right? That like, this is an illegitimate thing because it's people who should not be citizens um, who who have helped to put this person in office or defeat our our guy our sort of white savior? By the way, Heather. And, how, by the way, the inf- the danger. T- talk about this for a little bit. The danger of the enfranchisement of black voters. That is such an inherent danger that yeah. has become the organizing principle in a lot of ways of the modern Republican Party. That's just fascinating to me. But it okay. is. It's a it's a three sixty moment because that's really where we started. You go right back yeah. to post-reconstruction Jim Crow, the, in, the the inherent danger that that presented to, like, the white patriarchy. Yeah. 
And you know what's so deep about it? So I didn't write about January 6th in the book, right? Because I finished writing it in November with the final touches on it. Um, but I did go into quite a bit of detail on a story that is eerily parallel um, from the Reconstruction era. Uh, I include a chapter in the book called Never a Real Democracy, which talks about how racism and white supremacy has defeated democracy time and time again, and how our founders you know, left holes in the bedrock of, of otherwise a revolutionary vision of self-governance to make room for slavery and white supremacy, and that that's been the fight ever since. So I tell the story of Colfax, Louisiana, which is one of the most deadly race massacres in the country, and it was exactly this, right? It was It was a contested election. It was a courthouse where the election results were being certified. A white mob surrounded the courthouse. Uh, black citizens defended it. Um, and there was you know, actually a battle at this courthouse and, and 100 uh, plus black people were, were slaughtered. And uh, the, they, the white mob burned the courthouse. And basically they, they would rather burn the edifice of their own government to the ground, then share it with people of color, then submit to a multiracial democracy. And that is really the story of January 6th, right? They would rather overthrow an election, a national election, than, than, than admit that this, this, this white supremacist in chief had been defeated by a multiracial democracy of their fellow citizens. And the thing that's so crazy is, right, like, look, you talked about the threat, the danger, what is it exactly that they are so afraid is going to happen if we really have a true democracy in this country and if we really have something approaching equality? It comes down to this zero-sum fear, this idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. It is, uh, that is a, a worldview that is shared by, by, by most white Americans. It is not shared by people of color. We don't think our progress has to come at white folks' expense. When we get power, what do we do with it? We don't, you know come for your children, right? We, we don't institute punitive racial policies. We don't use the, 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 the mechanisms of the state to separate your families and imprison you and you know poison your air and water. We vote for better school funding. We vote for better roads and bridges. We vote for the types of things that this administration is rolling out, which are basically just stewarding what we have in common and making sure that all families can thrive. And that is the deep irony of how bankrupt this morally and as an organizing principle and economically this zero-sum worldview is, this idea that there are only so many gains that can go around and that um, you know they have to win and we have to lose, when in fact, you know, no matter what our color, what our background is, we pretty much all want the same things. You know, we want safety. We want, you know, our families to be well. We want to meet our basic needs. We want a shot at fulfilling our dreams. And it's this lie of racial hierarchy that has been exploited by the right wing, you know, really now to a degree that is, as I was saying, sort of almost cartoonish, where they, they are voting against you know, cleaning up lead pipes in, in their own rural districts um, just because they are unwilling to support the idea of a government that's, that exists and has the power to serve all of our people. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I think it's just echoed throughout your book, but, um, you know, it's like the it's the applied nature of um, the learnings that you're sharing that we're living through 
um, right now, Heather, that I think is just, um, it's, it's what really makes the book pop and kind of come to life. Um, by the way, just to, as a rejoinder to the point that you just made, um, you know, I heard the author, uh, rather the, uh, attorney Carl Douglas recently talk about how, um, you know, our white friends and neighbors are fortunate that black folks are not vengeful because mm. I'm telling you, um, the grace of black people, whether it's stepping up and making sure that, you know, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in places like Georgia and in Pennsylvania, showing up and when they're in power, doing things that don't just support our community, but support lots of different people who share our communities, um, who don't all look like us. It's the yeah. grace versus the vengeance that I think, you know, there is this, this maybe popular idea in the conservative zeitgeist that that vengeance exists and it really doesn't. And they're really fortunate right. that it does not exist um, because right. it could really, it could explode this country. The, the grace and the composure and the pragmatism of black and brown uh, people um, is part of the story of what is keeping this country together, I would argue. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's what I heard out on the road when I was researching the book. You know, I talked to a Mississippi um, auto factory worker um, who talked about how in the drive that he and his colleagues had had done to try to organize the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi. Um, it was really, it, you know, the defeat of that union organizing drive really fell along racial lines. It was a very racially fraught um, fight where union was sort of a dog whistle for for, for black people and lazy black people. It was like if you were if sort of a real man, you didn't need the union. It's only those lazy blacks who need the union and all of that. And I asked him, you know, kind of how, how do you, given all of that, how do you organize um, your white coworkers who were going to be necessary um, to to win? And and he talked about how it was, you know, he basically said that you know you got to be crazy um, to do this to do this work because the people that kind of hate you the most, you keep them the closest. You 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 fight for them. You you. You, you try to make a common bond, you know, and he talked to it. Just this beautiful um, kind of little speech that he gave about how when you, you know, when you sweat, when you're hot, when you're tired, when you bleed on the job, like it's all the same. And you just try to convince them that that having real health benefits and a real pension and a real say on the job and better wages is going to be better for everybody. Um, and, I, and I just think I just couldn't. I was so moved by their grace and by their grit, um, and and just really realized that in that effort to organize a, a car factory in Mississippi was sort of you know all of the history of American struggle in in one place at one time. You know, it was really a, a, sort of this microcosm of the the history of the middle class and the, the way that, that corporate greed has used racism to keep the working class divided from one another and to, you know, enroll willing foot soldiers for the plutocracy um, of, of white folks who, who should know better um, because they, they'd rather be paid in the psychological wages of whiteness, uh, in the words of W.B. Du Bois, than they would in having real better wages. 
and really addressing inequality and really having more for their families. It's that taste of status that is more important to them than than real real freedom. And and that's really unfortunately kind of those are the terms of our politics today. Totally is. I think those are poignant words. So here comes the Payne podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Um, I'm joined on this episode by Heather McGee. She is the author of The Sum of Us, uh, the uh, What Racism Cost Us and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, it is a tremendous book. It um, debuted in February and it's been doing amazing. And I'm fortunate to have Heather on the show. Um, Heather, also, um, I should plug your 2020 TED Talk, um, How Racism Has a Cost for Everyone, which I think tracks pretty closely um, to the curriculum that's, um, that's amplified in the book. Um, you know, Heather, we're coming down the home stretch of our conversation here, and um, I'm, I'm, I, at the risk of moving us to a um, less weighty topic and maybe a stupider topic, but it, it kind of gets us to maybe like an interesting inflection point in the conversation. So Tim Scott gave the Republican response to uh, President Biden's speech to Congress um, just a few days ago, just last week. And the headline of the course that everybody ran with was him saying America is not a racist country. And so there's a couple of things here, Heather. And like you you and I may not be fully aligned on this, but but I think we're probably aligned on parts of this. So one, um, I do not support going online and calling him Uncle Tim. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, Uncle that Uncle Tom, well, no, they call him Uncle Tim. That's what the, that's uh-huh. a, that was the moniker. Um, oh, I don't okay, support, I don't support caricature him that way. Can, there are black conservatives. They are entitled to be black conservatives. I, I, I don't agree with it. I'm, I am entitled to question their judgment, but I won't question like the content of a black conservative's character. I'll question their judgment, but I'm, I don't, I don't do that. That's just me. People are entitled to feel the way they want to feel. That's fine. But it has sparked this really stupid news cycle over the last 72 to 96 hours where you have the vice president, a black and Asian woman, being asked if America is a racist country. So look at Kamala Harris in the face and ask that woman if she thinks that America is a racist country. As she is as she has endured over the last five decades, probably things that most people couldn't even imagine. Joe Biden, these people who are trying to appeal to a racially diverse coalition of voters, of course they're not going to go and accuse uh, their core voters of being racist. So the entire thing, it just there's a, a cannibalization of credibility that's going on here that just drives me up a wall. Um, you can tell this really triggered me, Heather. But the the bigger, I guess, the bigger question for you is. You know, what do you do with these moments? Um, I I guess I'd be kind of curious, one, just to kind of your thoughts about kind of that broader weighty question about like America is a racist country, which like, you know, I I think the proof's in the pudding, right? Like you can like you (laughs) I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that. But just like what is what is you with your background? What do you do with a moment like that? And how do you turn that into something that is an engagement opportunity to again to advance the conversation? Well, uh, we are aligned on this, I, you know, um, but uh, so first of all, it was a total victory for the Republicans that this is the takeaway conversation after a speech in which um, Joe Biden laid out a plan and a vision to fundamentally improve the lives of virtually every American laid out policies that get 60, 70, 80% approval 
uh, around infrastructure and family policies and raising the minimum wage. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it is a, it, is, it, it, it was classic, right? It was classic. They have one play left in their playbook, and that is the racial divide and conquer. And so to get the commentariat falling all over themselves to talk about racism in this narrow, stupid way that is devoid of any examples or solutions, most importantly, um, it, you know, so that we can ignore everything that the president said is a total victory. So that's the first thing, right? It is, it is, it, it was a GOP victory. Um, they had nothing to say about the things that President Biden was actually proposing. They have, they have no comeback. To not an idea, not popular. one idea, not one idea, not one stinking idea. Not one idea, right? They're totally bankrupt. And so they're just going to get into a name calling game about racism. Here's why it was uh, so masterful to have this, this phrase being batted around. Because when we talk about, you know, is America a racist country? White Americans hear that as, are we Americans racist people? Right. They only hear it as individual and they hear America as white Americans. And then they hear, you know, racism as the kind of individual racism, which means I wouldn't sit next to you on the bus still to this day. Right. That is that is the the poverty of our of our understanding of our own recent history and current you know, law and policy and disparities that we're not talking about systems and structures. We're talking about interpersonal. Am I a good person or am I a bad person? And so to have a black man sort of morally exonerate white Americans and then get a bunch of Democrats and leftists to be falling over themselves, you know, trying to blame Americans again. <laughs> and then agitated and then agitating box. agitating the president and the vice president to actually be compelled to answer this question right. which is like nobody I mean, asked this question uh, yeah. right. <laughs> there are no there are no dinner parties that start with like, yeah. I, I mean there there are but those and, aren't very good dinner parties if you ask and, me. Angel, what are we gonna do about any of it right? Yeah. This is the thing, right? The the joint address was all about solutions and ideas. And this is just debating the existence of a problem. So, you know, I mean, what, what might I have said? Um, I think I might say that our history as a country has been robbed from us, right? We, we have been denied our own history. The, dis- the extent to which the American government, and that's a shift, right? Because people always want to make it on about the individual. But the American government put in laws and policies in place to ensure that white people did better financially than people of color. And that people of color were denied the resources and the, the benefits of the economy that they contribute so much to is something that America today, as a country and as a government, still has to address. And that it is my job as vice president, as president, in this administration to do the work to make sure that everyone who contributes to this country's success has some you know, reward from that, from that effort. And that, so I would put it on myself as a government actor, right? Talk about the solutions, 
talk about what we want to do about it instead of this vague sort of fear that, you know, if America is a racist country, then should America be executed for like, you know what I mean? Like what's the, what's the, so then what, right? Um, you know, I just, it's, it's a damn shame. Um, and I'm sure that the white house is very frustrated. Uh, and you know, it's, I don't know how many times we have to fall for the okie doke. Yeah, seriously. And by the way, the, the points you're bringing up, I think, are excellent. And it tracks closely to someone who I'm sure you've interacted with, uh, Dorothy Brown, who wrote The Whiteness of Wealth, um, talking about the racism baked into the tax code, which I think just, again, I think it um, complements the, the broader arguments you're making about um, how these structures exist and how, uh, you know, we're kind of we're fighting inertia. Um, to, to dig ourselves out of the hole that racism has kind of dug the country into. Um, so anyways, I, I know she's done some good literature on that, and I wanted to give her a shout-out as well. Um, Heather, this has been a great conversation. I could, I'm sure as you know, as anyone who knows me knows, I could probably talk to you about this for two or three hours, but I will spare you, and I will spare the audience, and I won't do that. Um, it's so good to reconnect with you, my friend. And... Um, other than the book, again, the sum of us, what racism has cost us and how we can prosper together, I would encourage everybody to go buy that book um, and support my friend Heather and support the good lit- the, the good uh, work that's been done uh, there, the good academic work. But Heather, what else is going on? I know you're the chair of the um, Color of Change board. What are some other things that you've got going on, things that we should be looking out for, social media handles, plug away? All right. Well, so you can go to the sum, S-U-M, of us book.com to, to go to my website. Um, I'm on Twitter at H. McGee, uh, and I am, um, I am, I've got a bunch of projects cooking. We just uh, inked a deal to do a young reader's adaptation of the book, which I'm so excited about. I love the idea of, of young people getting, getting right history uh, at that crucial time. Uh, and I have a podcast that I'm working on, actually. Uh, so I'm getting pointers from you, Joel. Um, that won't actually be out until next January because I'm going into the field with it. It's a real sort of, you know, in-depth reported podcast um, that I'm doing with for Higher Ground, which is the Obama's production company with a, with Spotify, um, where I am really sort of digging more deeply into examples of people coming together across race to to take on big fights and, and kind of what they learn, what they have to overcome. Um, and that's, that'll have some of the characters from the Sun of us and then some new stories that I'm, I'm uh, finding now. Uh, I am often on NBC and CNN. Uh, and, and most importantly, I have, I have a two and a half year old <laughs> and he keeps me busy. Um, and, you know, I've got some few side projects and some, some things I'm trying to move in this incredible window of opportunity that we have to make policy right now uh, and so i do a little a little uh a little uh, side hustle advocacy as a as a as an informed citizen and so i'm i'm, I, I'm I trying to make is, change in as many ways possible i think that is an understatement heather side hustle advocacy um is a funny way <laughs> to put it last thing i'll say before i let us go here um i always make this plug to young people who are coming up and they're asking me for advice. And I'm like, you got to work on campaigns because I talk about our previous work together. And I tried to explain to people geographically where I was sitting. Okay. So on one side of me, I had our colleague, Adam Jettleson. We had, um, you, we had Corinne Jean-Pierre, we had James Qual. 
we had our colleague Eric Schultz. We had yeah. Christina Reynolds, my mentor. Yeah. We yeah. had we had such a wealth of talent. Jennifer Palmieri. I could go on and on. Yeah. I'm going to leave people yeah. out. Andrea Purse. And it was such a transformative experience. And that wasn't a winning campaign. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? But, but I would argue the talent that that campaign amassed, and I look at where those folks went. Um, one, it's just a testament to the, the assemblage of talent there. But also, I just think for young politicos, for young people coming up, it's such a good experience to kind of work um, in these dynamic ecosystems that these campaigns can be. And it also, it advanced, to, you know, I worked in Majority Leader Reed's office when we passed Obamacare and we passed Wall Street reform. And the seeds of that were all sown in that election cycle. Some of the work you were doing as domestic policy advisor, um, you know, with the backing of the late, great Elizabeth Edwards and folks like that, um, economists and folks like that, we moved the debate. Right. So we didn't win, but our ideas won in a lot of ways. And I just I I don't know if that jumps out to you, but that just jumps out to me as something I always think about. You said it best. You said it best. Go in, uh, work on a campaign, volunteer. It doesn't have to be a national presidential campaign. It could be congressional campaign, state legislature, mayor. Get involved. See how it works from the inside. Make it better. That is the wonderful Heather McGee, my friend, uh, the author of a transformative book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Cost Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. She's been my guest today. She's been so kind with her time. Heather, thank you so very much. Uh, I will look forward to talking to you soon. And to the audience, thank you so much for listening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Playware. Go to pressplay.com to learn more. Thank you so much. God bless and have a good one. Thank you, Joel.